Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind. I'm Brian McCallan. Do you feel the need to overcome adversity? Do you want to live a full, well-rounded, and happy life? And do you want to be the best person you can be? Well, look no further than to speaker and best-selling author, Marcus Engel. Marcus travels the country to tell his extraordinary recovery story after being catastrophically injured and blinded by a drunk driver. Mr. Engel is a motivational speaker, and he joins us today to explain how he recovered and achieved success by making the smart choices. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Your website, MarcusEngel.com, WVIRTV, and the Hartford Current all say that at the age of 18, while you were going to the diner with a few friends after a hockey game, a drunk driver hit the four of you. You broke every bone in your face and you endured a long recovery that involved more than 300 hours of operations to fix the devastating injuries, including reconstructing your face. Also, the accident, as I mentioned earlier, left you blind. What was going through your mind as all of these things were happening? And how did you endure them? What was going through my mind was mainly just pain. I, I received what's called a Lafort three facial fracture, which means that pretty much every bone between the hairline and the chin was completely crushed. It's kind of crazy to think that the disability and the debilitating nature of blindness took a back seat to just how much pain I was in. So yeah, there was there was some 300 hours of reconstructed facial surgery and about two years of recovery until I could accomplish my goals of getting back into college. Must have been hard, wasn't it? Was not the most fun I've ever had, I'll tell you that much. The Hartford Current says, though, that you give credit to all the medical professionals, the doctors, the nurses, because they showed you love, care, respect, acceptance, and they treated you like a human being underneath the devastation. Some of our audience members and show guests have had these similar, but maybe not as severe experiences. How did the doctors and nurses show you the compassion and respect as you went through these countless surgeries and recoveries? The best way I think anyone can show care is through simple human presence. The story that I always tell about my first night in the emergency room is about just how important simple human presence is to a patient. I, you're right. So many of your listeners and just so many people in general have gone through incredible medical difficulties, whether it's disability or injury or illness, whatever the case may be. And I think patients have the universal emotion of fear. We're all vulnerable whenever we go into a hospital setting. We we don't know what's going to happen. We go there to get advice from our caregivers. And that started off for me with a young lady named Jennifer who held my hand the entire night. When I was pulled into the emergency room, I was hanging by a thread 
And Jennifer held my hand the whole night and just kept repeating, Marcus, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, over and over to me. And that gift of simple human presence is absolutely the cornerstone of caregiving, but it's also the cornerstone of our very humanity. When, when one human being can recognize another's suffering and is present and empathetic, that's what it means to be human. Who was this Jennifer lady? Was she your nurse or your wife or doctor? The truth of the matter is 20 years went by. I've never had any information about who Jennifer was other than that she gave me so much comfort during what was my most vulnerable time of life. Uh, so then about, yeah, like 20 years go by. And then two or three years ago, I was invited to present to all the doctors and the nurses and the all the healthcare professionals at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, where I served my tour of duty. And even though I have written books based on this experience with Jennifer, I've never known her last name, never knew who she was, never knew what her position was in the emergency room, just had no information about her. And while I was back at the hospital giving lectures, I was reintroduced to Jennifer what I quickly learned was that Jennifer at the time was a patient care tech, sort of like a CNA, a certified nursing assistant. She was only 20 years old at the time. I always tell people that you don't have to have a big alphabet soup after your name or years and years of higher education to know how to care for another human being. It starts with simple human presence. One of our listeners, James Christie, he asks, how did you deal with depression? And how did you find hope to push through? I know you've discussed a little bit of this already with going back to college, but could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. Dealing with depression, I think that's something that, that is not exclusive to people with disabilities, certainly not exclusive to anyone with the disability of blindness. I think anyone who goes through a major loss in life can certainly have symptoms of depression. I certainly did for a long time. I went through quite a bit of counseling. I went through pharmaceutical therapy with antidepressants. I think what really helped me the most was having that goal. And that goal, while I was still restricted to a, a ventilator and a feeding tube, my goal was to get myself back into college as quickly as possible and to try to regain as much of the life as I had previously. That goal was really one of the things that sustained me. How did you follow that goal of going back to school? First of all, I had to be medically healed enough to even eat solid food again. I went for over a year without being able to eat solid food and six months without being able to walk, six months without being able to sit on a toilet by myself. Just a lot of major life changes. So once the medical healing was, well, I shouldn't say complete because that took over several more years. And even today, I still may need to have future surgeries. But after I was medically healed up enough to get back to school, I didn't go immediately back to college. I went to a rehabilitation program in Denver, Colorado, where I was learning how to how to be blind as an adult and learning independent living skills. Uh, following that, it was a month of training with my first seeing eye dog in New Jersey. And then finally, almost probably two years after that horrible crash, I was able to take my first steps back onto college campus. To learn to travel, you decided to complete this month-long training to receive a new seeing eye dog. How did you get your guide dog, and what did it take to pass the training? 
and let man's best friend just take you to the mall, supermarket, and the doctor. It was a great experience training with my first dog because I got very good at using my white cane with orientation and mobility. But I found that traveling with a dog suited me better. It gave me a little more independence and probably a good deal more speed. So learning with the dog was just like with anything. You start out slow and you increase in complexity and intensity. And so we would start out training on very just very quiet back streets and then worked our way up to bigger and bigger, more difficult travel scenarios until we did a day or two of training in New York City. That gave me a lot of confidence because I knew if I could navigate New York City, I could darn sure go back to Missouri and get around just fine. It was a really, really wonderful experience training with my first dog. You got your Bachelor of Science degree from Missouri State University in 2000. That was in sociology. I was looking at your LinkedIn page. How did you convince the sociology professors that you could still earn this degree despite your setbacks? I was very fortunate, I guess, at the time in life because sociology, for one, it, it's not an incredibly visual field. If, if anything, it's, it's auditory. It's the relationships and communication between different groups within society. So it didn't pose nearly as many challenges as, say, a mathematics degree or a chemistry degree or architecture might just due to the visual nature of those disciplines. I really had so many positive experiences with my professors, with the Disability Support Services office on campus that I, I guess I'm very fortunate that I never had to deal with any type of discrimination. I always had encouragement from my professors. I never had any of those um, any of those kind of opinions where people thought that I couldn't do it. I was giving noth given nothing but support and encouragement. You even went on for your master's in 2012. You, according to your LinkedIn page in 2012, you got your Master's of Science degree in Narrative Medicine from Columbia University in New York. What's Narrative Medicine? That's a great question. What is Narrative Medicine? It's a very new and emerging field that blends healthcare with the humanities. I say that those of us who work in Narrative Medicine, we take the stories of healthcare and we translate them into something from which others can learn. My specific work in narrative medicine is teaching nurses to embrace and tell their own stories and to use storytelling and therapeutic writing and journaling as a resource to ward off compassion fatigue and burnout. That's kind of what I do with narrative medicine these days. But when I graduated in 2012, my graduating class was only the third class to ever go through the program. So it is a very new and emerging discipline. In addition, you got the Patient of Courage Award from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons in 2010. PR Web says that one of your plastic surgeons, Dr. Timothy R. Jones, the one who performed the reconstructive surgeries on you, believed that you deserved to get this award. Tell us what it was like to win the award. Well, winning the Patient of Courage Award is not, you, you don't really want to receive this award. It's one of those awards you don't want because if you get it, it means that you have been through a lot of surgery. There were two or three other people who were recipients of the award that year, and I was the person who had gone through a lot of facial reconstruction. 
So it's an award that you don't really want to receive, but I was so glad that my plastic surgeon thought that I deserved this award. It was an incredible experience. The conference was in Toronto, Canada, and in front of 6,000 plastic surgeons, they brought each of us up on stage and did about a five or 10 minute story. And up onto the Jumbotron, they showed my x-rays and MRIs and T CT scans. It was a really amazing thing to see these other doctors from all around the world that had never seen facial damage quite as severe as what I had endured. Really, really fabulous honor, and I'm happy to have received the award, even though it's one you don't really want. Most of all, your website says that you've earned the National Speakers Associations. This is a better award the NSA's Certified Speaking Professional Designation, or CSP. This designation shows that you've met the strict criteria, including ethical behavior, outstanding client service, a commitment to continuing education, and even a proven track record with your ongoing speaking expertise and experience. What did you do to satisfy all of this criteria and earn this top designation and show the whole world that you can recover from tragedy, make the smart choices, and achieve success. I'm sure this didn't come from being nervous when speaking in front of large audiences of a thousand people, right? Well, I've got to be honest with you, Brian. I still get a little bit nervous before every speech. Now, I, I know I'm going to do okay, but until I am up on stage and start to have the communication with the audience, I am a little nervous. And probably the thing that makes me the most nervous is just the logistics of making sure that I don't take a step off the stage or end up facing backwards or something like that. But once, once I started speaking professionally, I think, I think just like with anything, when, when you're authentic about your story, when you're honest and truthful and you really have a desire to help people, that shows through. When I started speaking professionally, I wanted to make sure that everything that I said was honest, it was true, and it was from the heart. Anybody can, can stand up and give a good speech. But what it takes to run a business, to create product and to have repeat customers, that gets into more entrepreneurial aspects of the National Speakers Association. And this is this is an award that takes uh, it's a recognition, probably usually takes most people between five and 10 years to accomplish. And that was about what it was for me, too. As a motivational speaker, Marcus, you talk to audiences in the education, healthcare fields and corporations. First, you've spoken to college students about how they might turn adversity into victory and achieve success despite their obstacles and even make choices that's going to make them happy. What advice do you offer them in these areas based on your own triumph over adversity? We can't even always control what happens to us. I lost my sight after being hit by a drunk driver. I could not have controlled anything to have kept that driver from consuming a 12-pack of beer and then driving at 60 miles an hour and running a red light. There's nothing I could do to prevent that situation. However, we're all in charge of how we view our situations. I had to practice a lot of gratitude that I was still alive, that I still had proper brain function, and that I had just a multitude of family and friends who were there to support me. We all have the ability to look at our situations 
and decide, do we want to wallow in the adversity or do we want to understand that life is a gift and we should be appreciative of that gift and to try to get back on our feet as best we can? I can't say that it's an answer for everyone, but there are so many people that deal with feelings of whether it's low self-esteem or low self-worth, and I've been down that road too. But ultimately, we have the choice to decide how we view our circumstances. What do you speak to the healthcare workers about in terms of balancing their personal concern over patient concern, celebrating the healing power of humor, and applying these innovative techniques when treating patients, patient challenges, I should say? Well, I owe my life and the very fact that I'm able to talk to you right now to healthcare professionals. The paramedic who made an alternative breathing passage in my throat right there in the street was the first person who saved my life. And then I've had many doctors and nurses who have treated me whenever medical things have gone awry and have saved my life as well. I owe my life to healthcare professionals and I love to honor the incredibly tough work that doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, these people do really incredible work day in and day out. And I would not be the person I am today were it not for them. When I work with healthcare specific audiences, a lot of times I'm, I'm honoring the hard work that they do, but I'm also teaching them what are the little things that healthcare professionals can do that will help patients retain their dignity and independence while they're recovering? How about corporations? How do you teach the company employees to turn those challenges into accomplishments and value well, interpersonal relationships? Much like with college students and much like with healthcare professionals and pretty much everyone else in the world, we all have problems. We all have adversity. We all have challenges. Uh, granted, some of the challenge, the challenges that I have had to gone through are exceptional. They're extraordinary, but we all have difficulties. We all have problems and obstacles. And so, once again, we can look at our obstacles as being in our way, or we can choose to look at the adversity that comes through our life and look at it as a challenge and a challenge that can be overcome. Personally, I am so thankful for this great gift of life that it's, it's not so hard for me to look at those obstacles as anything other than opportunities these days. You also talk about some of your advice in some books you've published. They're titled The Other End of the Stethoscope, I'm Here, Compassionate Communication in Patient Care. After this, an inspirational journey for all the wrong reasons and everyday inspiration. What advice do you give in these books to help your readers make the right choices? Well, it depends which book you're reading. If we're talking about the healthcare aspects, I'm here in Stethoscope. Talk about what are the little things that we can do and what are the best ways to communicate compassionately with patients. After this and Everyday Inspiration are much more in the genre of memoir. These are the these are the life lessons that I've learned along the way. These are how I have applied these uh, these challenges to my own life. 
And is there something that's going on in your life where you could use the methods that I had to implement to get through my problems? Could those methods also work to help to get you through your problems? That's what you'll find in After This and in Everyday Inspiration. You also have a movie that's based on your memoir after this. It's called The Drop. Tell us more about the film. Sure. The film, it's a short film. It's only about seven minutes long. Uh, we created it to be a part of a short film festival about five years ago. We shot the movie in Atlanta, Georgia. Had a cast of about 40 or 50 crew members. And if anybody wants to see the film, you can see it for free online at thedropmovie.com. Thedropmovie.com. And it talks about one of the, the tests that I had to go through at rehabilitation school. And that was where I, as a student, got good enough at orientation and mobility that I was dropped off in an unknown location and had to find my way back to the school. So we capitalized on that experience to create what's hopefully a pretty interesting seven minute film. Your wife formed the Blink Foundation in 2012. In 2012, it got nonprofit status. The foundation inspires the at-risk adults and kids to overcome adversity and achieve success. Tell us more about the foundation, its mission and how our listeners might support the foundation. Certainly. We actually have two entities that are under the same heading. There's the Blink Foundation and the I'm Here Movement. The Blink Foundation is where I go into schools and colleges talking to students about how they can overcome their adversity, giving some disability awareness programs, and then also health and wellness programs on making intelligent choices, especially concerning substance abuse and impaired driving. The I'm Here movement is also a non-for-profit and that you can find more information at imheremovement.org. And this is where we talk to healthcare professionals about communication with patients and honoring the diligence and the commitment and the incredibly hard work that healthcare professionals do day in and day out. How might our listeners see your movie, buy your books, even check out some of your merchandise, even some of your upcoming speaking events? The best way to get any information is at MarcusEngel.com. If you would like to, pretty much from MarcusEngel.com, you can go to thedropmovie.com, you can go to I'mHereMovement.org, uh, you can get the books. The books, I do not have them in an audio format, unfortunately, as a, as a small publishing house, we don't have the ability to do that quite yet. However, if you have the uh, Read2Go app that is, uh, Oh, gosh, I can't even think of the, the company right now, but the Read to Go app, you can read the books via, via that system. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, other than just thank you for having me. And if you don't have the Read to Go app, anyone can feel free to email me, marcus at marcusengel.com. And for anyone who has any type of visual impairment, I am more than happy to send you a complimentary copy of the manuscript of the book so that you can read them with your computer through whatever, through whatever accessible software you choose. It all sounds good, Marcus. I know you've empowered, inspired our listeners to overcome their adversity, eliminate those self-limiting behaviors, look at obstacles as opportunities, and live their lives to the fullest. Thanks again for joining us today.
Thank you, Brian. Before we go, folks, I welcome your comments on the show. Just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind, or follow me on Twitter at Speak Out Blind or Speak Out for the Blind. You may also contact me at McCallan3 at Comcast.net. That's M C C A L L E N, the number three. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening, and remember to speak out. Here at ACB Radio Mainstream, we are always working to improve the quality of our programming. If you have any feedback about anything you have heard here on ACB Radio Mainstream, please let us know by sending an email to support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. You are listening to ACB Radio Mainstream, connecting the blind community. Hello, ACB Radio listeners, ACB members, and friends. This is ACB President Kim Charlson wishing you a very happy holiday season. I can't believe that 2015 is coming to an end, and the holidays are here. It just seems like we were celebrating last year. But the holidays can be a lot of fun for all of us, but they can be stressful too. So please try to keep all of what the holidays mean in perspective and balance everything. I need to take close heed of that myself because sometimes we get a little overexcited about all the things we have to do during the holidays. So I hope for all of you in 2016 that you will have a wonderful holiday season with friends and family You'll remember what the holidays symbolize for all of us. Love, peace, family, friends, our God in whatever form that takes. Beauty, for me, through singing and music. And have a lot of fun with the presents and the decorations, too. Whatever you do for your holidays, do it with a warm heart and loving spirit. My best to all of you in ACB land for a wonderful holiday season and a most prosperous and happy 2016. Announcing the 2016-17 ACB Scholarship Program. The time for spreading the news has once again arrived. The online application for ACB scholarships is live. All students who are interested in participating in the 2016-17 ACB Scholarship Program can go to acb.org and fill out an application. Each applicant's information will be carefully evaluated and a response will be sent to every student who applies. All pertinent information, including eligibility requirements, submission dates, and necessary documentation can be found online. If you are a student or if you know a student who would like to apply, direct them to the website acb.org and to the scholarship heading. The amount of scholarship awards ranges from $1,500 to $3,500. Winners are urged to attend the ACB Annual Conference and Convention to participate in a myriad of exciting and fulfilling activities designed to entertain, encourage, and enlighten. For further information, contact D. Fayan at 612-332-3242 or Michael Garrett, ACB Scholarship Chairman, Emmy Garrett, 
888-4443 at sbcglobal.net. ACB Radio.